Welcome to the LifeWay Student Ministry Podcast. I'm Ben Trueblood alongside Julie Plunk. Hello. And John Paul Basham. Yo. And we are looking forward to spending another episode with all of you. And man, all of you are so awesome to uh, choose this podcast to listen to. There are so many out there and we feel blessed and honored that you would choose this one to help you along in your student ministry journey. So first and foremost, thank you for allowing us to be a small part of that journey. I hope that we serve you well through this thing. Uh, If you haven't left a rating and review, we sure would appreciate it because we love to know what you think of the podcast. We want to continually make it better for you, student ministry people, the faithful of the LifeWay Student Ministry Podcast. So Thank you for that. Thanks for considering leaving a rating and review. And with that, on to our topic for today. So here's the thing. At the recording of this podcast, we are five weeks away from the arrest uh, and murder of George Floyd. So we're, we're five weeks away from that event. And certainly there are other events that led up to what we've seen over the month and a half, five weeks of race conversations, of protests that have been going on in cities all across our country, and even cities around the world. This has sparked something. I've heard some refer to it as a movement. I certainly hope so. I certainly hope that it becomes a movement that brings real change. But here's what tends to happen. And if I'm completely honest with you, it's where I've found my own mind drifting towards before I step in and say, wait, not this time. And that's, we're five weeks away. A lot of the news cycle, five weeks away from George Floyd's murder, a lot of the protests have happened. Certainly some are still going on, but the majority of the protest news has now gone out of the cycle and other things have entered in. And it's at this moment that I am challenging myself. So LifeWay students, podcast listeners, I want you to know this is something that I'm challenging myself in before I ever challenge anyone else, before I ever challenge you, I'm challenging myself to not naturally drift towards, okay, that's over, I've learned a little bit, it's done, it's time to go back to, quote, normal life. And if we look back at these events that take place, these events of racial injustice that take place, oftentimes in the church and in the lives of people that don't have to deal with racial injustice every day, we say something, we see something that shocks us, we dive in a little bit, and then we move on very quickly. And I feel in my own mind, because I've been reading books and like I've, I've dived into learning for myself. And I started to feel a little bit of the fatigue of man. I'm just, this is heavy. I've been feeling it for a little while now. And I'm j- my brain is just ready to move on. But here's the reality. Five weeks of feeling it is nothing compared to people who deal with racial injustice their entire lives and for hundreds of years. So it's like, that's a reality check moment that I'm giving myself because I've I've felt over this five weeks, the temptation to say, okay, let's follow the news cycle and let's go on to something different. So I'm challenging self to not go on to something different. Certainly our lives, we can allow other things to be a part of our lives, but let's not let go of 
this moment and what I think God has for us as the body of Christ and the church to embrace in this moment. So that's another reason why this podcast is happening at this point and not five weeks ago is because we wanted at LifeWay students, John Paul and Julie, producer Nathan, we all wanted to come back and revisit this and have a conversation on what we're learning. So here's another reason why we can't move on is because the teenagers in your ministry aren't. The teenagers in your ministry aren't moving on. They're involved in this. They're hearing about it. And for those who are involved in discipling teenagers, we can't move on from this because this is a discipleship necessary. This has to be a part of our discipleship. So my son, who is getting ready to go into high school, his summer reading was actually changed. And he was assigned now a book that is right in this topic. Because the teachers in, in our public school system, at least here where I live, and I know this is probably not the case everywhere, but my personal example is that the teachers in our community realize how big of, an, uh, of a moment this is, how important of an issue it is. So they're now assigning summer readings to their incoming freshmen to help them understand this issue more. So student pastors, like if our schools are gonna adjust and teach things like this, for us to be silent and for us to move on is just not an option. So that's, that's where we're going today. We're gonna talk about some of the things that we're learning in the hopes that it encourages you, that it spurs you on in the faith and it spurs you on in the ministry to learn, to continue in this topic so that you can, one, grow as a person, so that you can, two, be engaged as a believer and as a part of the body of Christ in this issue, and three, so that as you are engaging with and discipling teenagers, it's something that's not left out. And John Paul, I don't want to speak for you, but I want to ask you a direct question, and I'll, and I'll state it for myself and then, and then ask you. The issue of racial injustice was never brought up to me in my time as a middle schooler or high schooler in student ministry. Was it for you? No, absolutely not. And n not even, you know, you talk about church, never brought up in church, never brought up on sports teams. I mean, even sports teams where there were more, more black people and white people on a couple of soccer teams that I played on, never brought up in, in those environments. Really also not necessarily brought up when we were learning about the history of America and talking about slavery. I yes. Mean, even in learning about slavery, in my experience in public school education, it was, oh, but this is something that we've moved past. This was a dark spot on our history, but we're so thankful to have progressed past this, when the reality is that we have barely, we've made progress, but just barely. In the yeah. broad scope of things, in the real life, everyday living experience of Black America versus White America, we've made very little progress. So, no, I mean, not not in any arena is this something that was brought up to me or highlighted to me as something that needed to be focused on or thought about. Lee, would you have a similar experience from your oh yeah time in, in church, mm -hmm. church school, social circles? parents upbringing by parents like it's just not like even you know the Juneteenth celebration that is something I just recently in the last few years heard of that for the first time in my life 
yeah. you know, I'm almost 35 years old and I just heard of that. So, and it is, it's kind of, um, it's kind of embarrassing even to like admit that and say that there's some way there's some aim or, you know, like, oh my gosh, it's so embarrassing that I'm, you know, just recently learning and seeing things, but it's never too late to act on things, learn, take a posture of humility and move forward. That's all we're responsibility lies with how are we going to, what are we going to do about now? So, yeah, I mentioned my, my experience would be, would be very similar. So I want to make a statement and I, I, I almost want to give like all kind of disclaimers at the beginning of it, but I'm just going to go with it and, and we'll see, we'll see where it happens. I think there are many churches. First, let me say this. I do want to give one disclaimer. This episode is by no means, our goal is not to hate on the church for any kind of involvement in or not in this issue in the past. That is not the desire. It's not my desire. It's not the desire of, of anyone else here. Uh, we, we're not trying to just pile on the church in this moment, but we are church people and we have jobs that relate to the church very, very closely. And all of us have been in the church for a long time and have had leadership roles there. So I do want to say that uh, at the beginning. But I think one of the issues here is that we stop short of truly addressing racial injustice because we hide behind the phrase, this is a gospel issue, not a social issue, which is it is a gospel issue. And when we understand the gospel, I think it should force us into the social arena to make change and to be involved. And I think the place where we stop short is that we just use the label. Hey guys, here's what we have to understand. This is a gospel issue, but then there's no follow-up. There's no explanation of, Hey, and teenager, this is how the gospel comes to bear on these issues. And here's what being a person of the gospel is required to do now that we are people of the gospel. And so uh, I see a lot of that going around. And I see, and, and I think churches in that and leaders in that are well-meaning and they're correct. Uh, and they're not, they're not overtly trying to dodge the issue. But I think in just saying, hey, here's, here's all we need to understand. This is a gospel issue. And just kind of leaving it there doesn't help move the ball down the field, so to speak. And I am convinced, and this, this, I'm convinced of this before the last five weeks that we've experienced as a nation. For real change to happen in this area, it's going to take place from teenagers right now. It's going to take place as the next generation rises up and says, hey, here's what we believe about this. And we're going to be involved in this and we're going to speak out about this and we're going to make real change happen. Um, and that, you know, if we're doing an episode on what we're learning, that's one of the things that stands out to me in this is that teenagers are not sitting on the sidelines of this. They're jumping into it wholeheartedly and they're speaking their mind and they're saying things and they're asking great questions. And if students are in the middle of it, those of us who are involved in discipling teenagers must also be in the middle of it. Hmm. We talk all the time in student ministry about, Hey, you got to go where your students are. You've got to educate yourself on the culture in which they live. Well, this is it. 
And so I, silence is not an option when we see teenagers responding and being involved the way they are. I think there's also something to be learned from what you mentioned in this kind of being written off as a gospel issue, because there's a, there's a bigger truth behind that. It, it, it should be the case that when a church leader says, this is a gospel issue, it should be the case that it's automatically one of the highest priority issues out there. Yeah. Yeah. But we know, and writers of scripture get onto churches all throughout scripture because of this, we know that we tend to get lazy with the gospel in general. So, you know, what, what do we do with the gospel? I've talked about this before, about my frustration and hearing people ask questions during some of our training environments about gospel fatigue, you know? Well, I, you know, I just, I don't want to talk about the gospel all the time because my kids get tired of it. That's because we are not running with the gospel. That's because we're not treasuring the gospel. That's because we're not filtering everything that we do in life through the gospel. We're not living as a result of the gospel. We're just tagging the gospel on to the end of our programming. Yeah. So for us to say as the church, this is a gospel issue, should be saying that this is an issue of utmost importance that is going to be carried out into everything we do. If this is a gospel issue, this is an issue that should be filtered through the redemption of Jesus Christ of all humankind mm-hmm. and should lead us to a place of service. It should lead us to a place of compassion. It should lead us into a posture of humility. It should, it should lead us to the throne to say, if this is a gospel issue, God, what do we do with this issue? How do we act? How do we love others through this? How do we worship you through this? If this is a gospel issue, it should rise to the forefront. I totally agree, John Paul. I was thinking similar things when Ben was reading that are saying that statement because of course, as we look at the grand narrative of scripture, there's still this big event that has not happened yet. We're working towards revelation seven when every tribe, tongue and nation is reconciled to God and to one another. So we're working towards that. So when people say use the gospel as a cop out, like you just said, John Paul, it's not, no, that's motivation. That means we need to work towards the full revelation of Revelation 7. So we are constantly working towards reconciling ourselves to God and to one another, you know, under that beautiful image that hopefully we're all going to experience under the throne of God. So I, and it is just interesting to me how people apply, this is just, this is a gospel issue they pick and choose what they apply that to. That's, you know, so I don't hear that said very much about abortion or maybe Mm. some other issues that might align um, more politically with people's uh, conservative beliefs. So it's, I just find it interesting how it is a picking and choosing of what we're going to apply that statement to, Ben. Yeah, or or at least not go the nth degree with explaining how that connects to those, to those other things. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You know, Julie, you, you mentioned revelation and the picture of, of the kingdom of God at the, at the end and every tribe and tongue and all of those kinds of things. And Kristen and I were talking the other night and we talked about the connection between that picture of the kingdom of God 
with people together, right? People of of all tribes and tongues. Is that like is what the translation that we say all the time? Mm -hmm. uh, but we also talked about how the Lord's Prayer, uh, when He teaches us how to pray, says, "Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven." And yeah. so, like, we we can't be a people who don't desire to have a multi-ethnic spiritual experience. Mm. We have to desire that if we're going to be people who pray as the Lord commanded us to pray, which takes on a lot of different forms. And I've heard very wise people say, not every church is meant to be a multi-ethnic church. You should reflect the, the community in which you're in. And yes, but that doesn't mean that our partnerships and the work that we do together in ministry and the, the, the people that we're with in our daily lives, like those, if we're going to pray the way the Lord commanded us to pray, there ought to be a multi-ethnic piece of our Christian experience while we're here on earth, because that's what we're, that's what the kingdom of God looks like. And Kristen made the point, I will, I will credit the source here, but in her reading and, and things that she's doing on this topic, she pointed to how we as white believers are missing out on the teaching, the thought, the theological viewpoints, the Bible exposition of other ethnicities as they approach the Bible and, and what they do in their in religious experience. And religious experience here, I'm, I'm specifically a Christian experience that we are in. That, that when we close our minds and, and our lives off to that, then we're actually missing out on pieces of this Christian experience that could enrich our own relationship with the Lord. And we're missing out on that because we're so narrow in, in how we handle this many times in church world. Mm. Couldn't agree more with that. One of mine and Crystal's favorite worship experiences lately was when we took a week to go to a church that's closer to downtown. And it is not an all-black church, but it was probably 70% black. And we had just heard a lot of really cool things about the church, and so we decided to visit one day. And the pastor of the church was preaching through one of Paul's letters. And as he's talking about the context of the letter, he mentioned Paul was in prison as he's writing this letter. And so one of the things that he started off with was how many of y'all know somebody in jail? And wow. every black person in the room raised their hands. Mm. And very few of the white people in the room raised their hands. And so there were several things going on in our minds in that moment. Like, okay, one, I've never heard a white preacher ask that to the congregation. And so all of a sudden there's this huge disparity in experience that's that's opened up like okay this is a, just the illustration of the lived experience that we saw in that one moment but then what the pastor went on to do was to describe paul's life as someone who frequented prisons you know and what that's like and how that applies to the majority of the people that were in that room for worship that day and he brought out so many things from just the fact that he was writing from jail that I had never heard a white pastor bring out of that text. And we left there saying, I've never even once considered that piece of scripture from that perspective. 
Mm. And was so encouraged, you know, but, but at the same time, it was like, why have I never thought about that? Yeah. Why have I never, this is a huge piece of Paul's story, writing letters from being on trial for his life. You know, that's a huge piece of his story. It's just not a piece that white pastors and white congregants think about because it's not part of our lived experience. And I think, man, just to sit through worship, to sit through even just and this is this is part of the 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 culture of that church too, but you know churches that I've been in before you you do a survey and all the people you know you let people speak into what do you like what do you not like uh, you know how can we serve you better and I've been in three different churches where surveys like that have come back and people say man the greeting time is just awkward you know can we cut down the greeting time the <laughs> man stepping into this church one of the first things we noticed was that the greeting time was like five minutes long and everybody is up and hugging each other and what's going on and how are you? And I love you so much. And it's hugs and it's high fives. And it's like, Hey, we're having community. All of a sudden there was this incredible feeling that comes as a part of a culture that I have not been privy to because I haven't put myself there. That was so community oriented and so personal relationship oriented, so loving toward one another, really treasuring that moment of worship together that I have not experienced in white church culture ever, ever. Mm. And we, we did leave there saying, man, we've robbed ourselves of this by not digging into community with the black people around us. So what are some other things that, that you guys, you know, some top things that you would say, man, over the last five weeks, I've really learned blank. I know for me, I mean, this podcast is not long enough to even remotely (laughs) chip off with, you know, things I've learned. Um, I think that in my past, I thought I had to choose between reacting politically or reacting biblically. Mm. And I think I'm learning that both are necessary. Just put them in the right order. So I'm trying to let scripture be the first lens that I'm looking through this with. And then what are political practices, changes that can be applied to these very true biblical beliefs that I believe are, are very sacred. And so I think I've seen a lot of others, I don't know, just feel like they have to choose. Am I going to choose, kind of like you were saying, like, am I just going to say this is a gospel issue and it is that, or am I going to go the political route and let that feed, that be my starting point. And yeah. so that's kind of like, I know that's very broad, but that's what I've been working into and and for me trying not to be fearful of uh maybe the stereotypes I may receive if I speak out if I say things that I believe to be true and something to be fought for not letting the fear of other people putting me in a box like oh well if you say this then you're aligning yourself with this or you're aligning yourself with this political party or this person and not yeah. letting those fears stop me from being open to these real issues. So those those are just a couple of the nuggets I've been working through. Yeah, that's good. We do 
we do live in an all or nothing society and it's ridiculous and we, <laughs> oh, and <dumb>. so <laughs> you're totally right like if you say one thing then there are those who would say you also agree with these 150 other things because of that one statement or if you yeah. align or if you quote someone you know that has a really great outlook on this specific issue even though i may not agree with other opinions that person right. may have that doesn't negate their good opinion on this just like when we're talking about the history of america all the the bad saying the bad decisions that we as a nation have made doesn't negate the good things we've done too so it is there's just a dichotomy that's been printed in front of us that everyone's just saying you're either this or this and that's it you got to make your choice yeah that's right john paul what about you similar feeling to what julie expressed that we, we could do five episodes here on what i feel like we're all learning one one really overarching idea that has had several implications for me is just that i'm not friends with truly friends i'm not in deep friendships with black people um and the consequences of that are many mm. and one of the mm. one of the major consequences there is that i don't I have not had the kind of compassion that I should have had throughout my life for people that lived right next door to me and lived a completely different life than I did. You know, I, I didn't know. And because I didn't know, I didn't care. And, and that's not something that, I mean, I have never been in a place where I would just say, man, I don't care how you live, but my actions, my, or my inaction, has shown so many people in my life that I don't care what their life is like. And I don't, I have not cared to learn what their life is like and why their life is that way. And that's been something that's been super convicting. Another, I hesitate to say this, but if we're just going to be honest in this conversation <laughs> and let people interpret this however they will, um, is that another consequence of that is that I have racial biases that I continue to uncover in my life. Mm. And so, and these are things that have been exposed by other people that have spoken honestly into this conversation, but things like, <clears throat> um, I mean, I remember growing up, man, if you're, you're going somewhere and there is a, a group of black people standing on a corner somewhere, Man, you, you cross the street at a different corner because oh, I don't know, you know, they might hurt me, you know, is, is, I don't know if that's a safe place to go or living in Virginia. We lived right across the street from some section eight housing and we never, we never went in there. We never, we never went in that housing complex to try to serve those people to get any of them. I mean, they're literally my neighbors mm. across the street never stepped foot in there, uh, tried never to stop at the traffic light. <laughs> that was right there. I, and, it, and it's ridiculous. I can think back to times that um, a black man has been behind me when I'm in a big city or something, you know, on a mission trip with kids or just on a, 
on a trip with my wife for fun and there's a black guy behind us and I'm all of a sudden stepping on the side of Crystal where her purse is hanging. So her purse is between the us or, or pushing her to the other side of them or putting my hand back on my wallet. And I, I'm ashamed of that. Let me be really clear. I'm ashamed that those are biases. And I, I can't even tell you how they got there. But it's something that I am learning are there and I'm having to actively fight those things. As soon as that thought comes into my mind, I'm having to actively say, that is a ridiculous train of thought. Mm. Put that away and replace that with compassion. But you know, that compassion just is not going to come until we're in relationship and we love people that don't look and act exactly like us. And we realize the beauty of culture. But, you know, that's just a couple of things. And that last one, it's, I have two inner, I have two biracial sons. And for me to have to admit that I have that kind of reaction sometimes to a person of color that I just don't know is one of the most shameful things. Because at what point do my two sons turn from being cute to being a threat to someone else? Man, it's a, a hard thing to wrestle with. It is. And man, I, I appreciate your courage and honesty and willingness to say, stop this line of thinking. Um, and I, so a, another conversation that I think is, that is important here is that we have been so trained in our minds to think, if there is something racist in me, that means I am a bad person. And I think that is an unhealthy view because yeah. it keeps us from looking for the very things that you mentioned, things that are in my life too. And it keeps us from plumbing the depths of our hearts and souls and introducing sanctification to those areas because we're so afraid of being labeled mm. a bad person or the term racist. Like you hear that term and your mind goes to, as, as a white person, your mind goes to, well, I didn't do any of those horrendous things 400 years ago. Mm. Like how many times have you heard people use that as an argument for mm. like, I'm not racist because I didn't do those things. I hate that that was done. Yeah. But the reality is, is that we turn those feelings off. I think, and this was, uh, this, this is an original thought to me. This comes from book. This comes from conversation that it's a binary decision in if racist, then bad and horrible. And what you articulated, John Paul, was a journey of, I'm trying to discover these things in my life to prune them out of my life so that I can become a more compassionate follower of Jesus in this area of my life. And if that's not discipleship, I don't know what is. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's, it. it is, it's so convicting and it, 
you know, if we really believe that we are depraved and messed up without Christ in our lives, how would we not even consider that these things could be in our hearts? There's a, a one of our pastors at our church, actually, he just moved to a different church, but Anthony and I, I heard him compare this to abuse. And so, you know, you have really obvious outward physical abuse that people see. And so a lot of people associate the term racism with that. So those, like you said, like back in slavery, the bit like lashings and lynchings and like spraying with hoses, like that's what they consider people associate racism with. Then there's all this other abuse. There's financial abuse. There's emotional abuse, verbal abuse. And sometimes those things are not seen. They are not obvious but that doesn't mean they're not real and present and having an effect. And so when I, I thought that was one of the best analogies I had heard about this, the racism that we see most, which obviously George Floyd was very physical. I'm not saying physical racism isn't still happening, but it really just, I thought gave a great perspective on there's so much unseen, like you said, John Paul, uh, the things that you're working through and I'm through very similar things. Like no one would be able to see that from the outside, just looking at me. I don't know that anyone would call me racist or say I have prejudices, but you know, that's still there and still something like you said, Ben, that has to be dealt with fleshed out. So I think y'all made some just great points. So convicting. John Paul, I would love to hear from you. Let's put on our student pastor shoes for a moment. Those if you like were, Jordans. <laughs> this is Jordans, that's right. Uh, if you were to put on your Jordans right now and stand up in front of a group of teenagers, recognizing at first that to truly make this a conversation in student ministry where teenagers are discipled in what the Bible says and how our lives should be shaped in this issue, as well as other issues, knowing that that is longer than a one-night message. And if all we're given it's one-night message, then it, what we're saying is not going to stick. What would be your approach based on what you're learning to take them to teenagers in there and teaching them how to walk with Jesus in this? Because I think that for us as student pastors to really embrace this as part of discipleship, we have to be learning ourselves. And you're doing that. And so how would you take what you're learning to a group of teenagers and, and help them to see maybe the things that we didn't see when we were teenagers in student ministry? Man, I think a lot. Of, so my experience in the church is very much in white churches, as right. I've already expressed. And so one thing that I have experienced from the white church, even, you know, when I first came on at Lifeway, I was a student ministry specialist, which meant I traveled the country and trained on how to do student ministry. And you get to feel what different churches feel like. And sometimes you walk in the front door of the church and you can just tell this place is filled with Jesus. And other times, more often than I would like to be the case, you would walk into a place and it felt very corporate. And sometimes not corporate at all, just dead. And I think that the white church is at a huge deficit. And I wouldn't say that other, other kinds of churches that represent different 
demographics don't struggle with this, but having grown up and served and trained in a lot of white churches, I think we are incredibly deficient in understanding how to love and be in relationship with one another as the body of Christ. We have mastered church programming. We know how to gather people and check off, check off a list of things that we say, oh, well, this is a, a step in a discipleship process or whatever, fill in the blank. We're mm. really good at pulling off programs. We're really extraordinarily bad at loving people and investing in people, doing life with people because we see those kinds of interactions as an inconvenience. You know, we go to church on Sunday and it's a thing we do. We go to Bible study on whatever other day of the week and it's a thing we do. It's not the way we live. Yeah. And so at the risk of oversimplifying, I think the beginning of this equation is teaching people the true biblical picture of what it looks like to love and serve one another as the body of Christ to like the book of Hebrews says, encourage one another today while it's still called today. There's a reason for that repetition. Do it now. Encourage one another now. You know, scripture tells us to outdo one another in showing honor. It tells us not to, if someone asks us for something, don't turn them away from that thing, but give them of what you have. Give them those good gifts. It tells us to seek out the orphans and the widows, to look for the marginalized and intentionally love them, intentionally draw them in and do for them. Scripture tells us to seek each other out and love one another the way that Christ has loved us. And I think if we don't learn that lesson, We'll never get any further in this conversation. So yeah. that, that's where I think in this moment, I would probably start as a foundational lesson. Just what does it actually look like to love each other? Yeah. Brian Loritz, if you're not familiar with him, the Google can be helpful there. He posted a video. It's like eight to 10 minutes long. It, uh, he posted it pretty quickly. I think it's still on his Instagram and like the highlights thing. But he posted it pretty soon after Darren Patrick's death. So it wasn't specifically about the issue of race that we're talking about today. But his point was so incredible. Like, it really took me back. And his point is that the problem, problem that churches experience is that they are much more theological than they are relational. Yeah. And that's not to to mean that we should let go of all of our theology. May it never be so. But he, in that video, and he's going, he, he does a great job and is much more eloquent than I am with, with this. But he talked about the problems that a church experiences or that we experience in our own lives when we are first theological rather than relational. So it's not, those of you that are like, the theology people. It's not throwing our theology out the window and going down a dangerous road there, but it is, I am going to seek to be relational and love, and then my theology centered on Christ and, and his comes to bear on that rather than the other way around. And when we get it the other way around, 
we become an unwelcoming, cold, harsh people. Yeah. So if you haven't watched, go go look it up. I'm sure it's on his Instagram still. But it, it's a it's a powerful thing that he delivers on that topic, and it goes right along with what you were just saying, John Paul. And I think that's that's an interesting conversation just in and of itself. When you think about bending relationships around theology, this is the way it was kind of in my mind. What is how does it look when you bend theology around relationships versus bending relationships? When theology is the core, I think you're exactly right. It becomes very cold. Relationships become very calculated. Because I hold this, can y'all hear my dog barking downstairs? Yeah, it's all good though, because on the other side of this wall where I'm at, my son is banging his set. So I can't hear that through yours at all. (laughs) It's just part of it's just part of coronavirus podcasting. It's all good. So when you try to bend relationships around theology, what I think of is this study that we're working on with Sean McDowell, uh, True Love Waits study. And he's addressing relationships and how the church should navigate relationships and ministry to the homosexual community, the LGBTQ plus community. When you try to bend a relationship around a theology, what the church often does is says, oh, I don't agree with what you believe theologically, and so I can't be in relationship with you. And so it doesn't work. But when you bend theology around relationship, not to say that you compromise that theology, but you start from a point of relationship and you seek to live in right theology in that relationship, I think you find yourself in a wildly different place of compassion to say, even if we don't believe the same thing, there's a desire to be in relationship and to love one another to the Lord. And there's a path to lead each other to write theology out of love and respect for that person. The other way, there's nothing but a block. There's not a path. There's a reason to not be in fellowship because of theology. Yeah. Yeah. It's what, man, it's what Mike Taylor said. He probably says it all the time. He, I love that guy. And he, uh, it's what he said on, uh, I believe it was a student ministry that matters YouTube that we did. The gospel moves at the speed of relationships. And if we're truly going to be a gospel people, now he's coming from a, a, a ministry context now where he is sharing Jesus in Europe that is far further into the post-Christian mindset and, and environment than we are in America. And he's saying, look, we're going to be there in less than 10 years. So we've got to figure out how to continue to, to share the gospel and spread the good news of Jesus in that and so his, that's his phrase, the gospel moves at the speed of relationships. And that's exactly what we're talking about here, Yeah. right? True. Like that, it, it has to start with me being willing to say, I love you, not I disagree with what you believe, but I'm supposed to love you. Those are two really different positions to take. Yeah. And our teenagers are going to adopt one of those, right? That's right. Like we're going to teach them to, that they have to love people. Or we're going to teach them how to love people and then 
flows out of that. And I think there's, there's a lot that comes with that in, in allowing someone to love you. I'm really terrible at allowing people to love me well. Mm. Because, and I think it's in large part because, because of that same kind of upbringing. You know, you kind of do life, you know, by yourself. You handle what you handle, you know. And when you go to church, you know, you, you give out hugs and whatever. But you really just go back to your own, your own kind of life. Yeah. But teaching them how to be in relationship, I mean, you learn the beauty of the differences that you have, you know, and you, and I think there's a, there's a posture of humility that comes with that because you see like, oh, I'm going to be friends with people that are completely different than me, believe things that are different than me, live in a way that's different than me. And all of a sudden in, in highlighting all of those differences, you also have to grapple with your, how am I different from all of these other people? And I think that brings humility. I think that brings a worldview that's not so self-centric. Yeah. That is a healthy place to live in. Ben, you mentioned earlier, I don't know if you, you had something else to say along these lines, but I was going to ask you, because Crystal and I have been in the same place. Crystal ahead of me. That's my wife in this journey. She's, uh, she may be like 30 or 40 books in at this point on, on this topic. Wow. <laughs> and so... She and I have had the conversations of being fatigued in it and, and come to the same conclusion, like, who are we to be fatigued? Yeah. What have you found to be helpful in keeping yourself moving forward in, in the conversation and in the education? Man, so I'll give uh, a couple things. One is just a disciplined reaction of man, I don't have a right to be fatigued in this right now. That may be wrong. That may, I don't know if that's good advice for people, but for me, that has helped to combat that feeling of, I just, I don't have the right. Uh, as a friend and as a father who wants to raise kids that have these kinds of conversations and seek to live influentially in this area, I don't have the right to turn it off it has helped in engaging in this with someone else. So we'll read books and it's like Chris and I, she reads faster than I do, but we'll read and then we'll swap. And so that keeps us in conversation. So there's some accountability there. I think being your friend and you and I have had some of these kinds of conversations and uh, Julie and John Paul and, and producer Nathan have talked about hey, we need to engage in this from the podcast. And so there's additional conversation and accountability there. And then the last one that I've not started yet, but I am excited to, because my reading so far has been very narrowly focused on this specific issue of racial injustice. Um, and I've read some books that would talk about white evangelicalism in the church and the dynamics there, as well as expose myself to some content on like the more social piece of this. But I realized, and you, I think, Julie, you may have alluded to it earlier, or one of you, one of you guys said this, but in, just in school, I was not exposed to Black history at all. Yeah. You hear a couple of prominent names, and like, that's it. And I read a tweet um, the other day and it was, uh, it was a person who just listed out several people that said it was after 
high school and college that I learned about these people and their contributions to history. And so I have, I, I, I'm, like I said, I haven't started yet, but one of the things that I'm going to do to help fight the fatigue is to just read more black history and get out of the specifically social dynamic of racial injustice and read about black history because I know that there, those themes and things will be present in that. But like, I'm gonna read the biography of Frederick Douglass and like just things like that, that I'm really excited to learn about that I feel like I just missed out on because I love history. And that was like the thing I did best at in school and I love it. And now I'm like, I missed half of it. Yeah, I think that's really good. That was, that has been part of my approach too in, so there was one podcast that I listened to recently that taught me a lot of things about Abraham Lincoln's presidency and some of the policies that he put in place and the way he handled civil war. And there were a lot of things in there that I had never heard about Abraham Lincoln. And so part of, part of dealing with that fatigue and dealing with all of a sudden the questions of, was I taught a completely fake history? <laughs> You know, yes, was to read a biography of Abraham Lincoln and learn learn about the man, and I think I learned a, a couple of things in doing that. I'm not through that biography, but there's a few things. One, I think it's very good to listen to a one-sided history through the filter of Black America and the Black experience to push back against the one-sided white revisionist history that I've been taught. And so on, on, in a couple of levels, it was at first uncomfortable to me because it was like, well, no, this isn't anything like what I've heard. Surely this is wrong. And so there was this kind of discipline of growing in acceptance of, let me listen to the other, completely the other filter. And then at the same time, in digging into something like that biography of Lincoln, trying to make my own way to the middle. And I think that has really helped me in the fatigue. Like, okay, I've been taught one thing and now I'm hearing another thing. And where is the middle? Where's my, what kind of self-education can I provide for myself to find the true narrative? Because you know, one side is never a hundred percent correct. The value of listening to the absolute other side is because we know we've only heard 50% of the story. But it's been a lot of fun to try to come to the middle and say, okay, this account says this, this account says this, and here's where it looks like after studying the context of both of those accounts, where the center is. And then where does that center line take you? It's been a really fun journey. That's really good. That's really good. There, really practically, there's this chart that I share with people that are looking as we research and read and it shows this chart of all the news sources. And as we know, like you said, like there's always, there's never like a hundred percent truth probably in, in in every one sided, but there's also very huge biases in certain news productions. And so it shows a chart of like where those biases lie and where some, the, the most quote unquote neutral ones in the middle. And so I think it's, I do think we need to be strategic in where we're getting our information from and what that background is. And it's really helped me in my research so I can find something that maybe doesn't have as much bias 
as, you know, or motivation to sway me a certain way. So I think you have to be really smart about it. Yeah. I heard somebody say recently, it's not fair to judge a, a historical figure by their worst decisions. And I think that's absolutely right. When we, when we're talking about how do we love people? Well, I fell into a place for a little while and it was a whole list of historical figures that I had just completely written off. Like you are the scum of the earth. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Lincoln for a short time was one of those. The reality is that he is still truly a hero in our country and a big part of our history. But, it, but it's our responsibility to educate ourselves. It's our responsibility to know well the events of our history and then to act on them in, in whatever way we can. Yeah, uh, I w wanted to mention one thing and then I'd love to get a, a closer to you. But the thing I wanted to mention is that I, this moment too has brought to the surface for me how important it is that we are able as God's people to read things that where, where we are able to search through the text of what's written and be able to say, okay, this is helpful for, for me. This is helpful for our situation and our culture, but these pieces go specifically against what God says in his word. Yeah. And I think the skill of being able to take modern writing, or it, let's take the word modern out and just say non-biblical text, mm -hmm. and to be able to read it and say, man, this is helpful. I'm learning from this, and this is something that I can act upon, and hold those things in one hand, and with a critical eye, be able to say of the other things, I can't embrace that, because that would be to walk away from what is commanded and taught in Scripture. And I think that that is to connect it to student ministry. I think that that is a skill that we must impart to our teenagers, especially in this moment. Because Julie, of what you mentioned earlier, on th this is an all or nothing culture. And it, it's like we can't agree with one thing somebody said unless we're willing to agree with everything they said. And that's just not reality. And our students need to be able to stand in the public square and to be able to take in information synthesize it, match it up against God's word and say, okay, I have to kick these out, but these I can learn from and hold on to. So with that, let's move to closing statement. Julie, you want to lead us off here? I would just say that we're, I hope that this desire to learn and take a step back and humble ourselves continues for a long time, that it's constant in our lives, that building relationships will be the starting point of how we live our lives, not just in relation to this huge issue, but a ton of other huge that are just in the world and are going to be in the world for a while. So I just, that's my heart. That's my heart for all the student leaders listening to this as well, that like you said at the beginning, Ben, this doesn't stop when the social media, you know, when social media stops talking about it, but that we are driven to act and learn on this and, and fight for Revelation 7. Yeah. John Paul? Man, I think I might just leave listeners with an encouragement that it has felt there has been a, a different kind of momentum in this season. Hmm. 
And this has been a hard season with COVID and everything that has brought and, and COVID has wreaked havoc on economies. I mean, our team has been affected with job loss and churches have been affected with not being able to meet with their, not being able to meet with their people and do ministry the way they've been able to. Many of us know people that have died as a result of this illness. It has been, it's been bad. One bright spot that you can pull out of this, and there are more, but one bright spot is that everyone was incredibly still when these events happened. And it has highlighted a great weakness in the church. It's highlighted a great weakness in our culture. But as we're talking about this being a gospel issue, it has highlighted a great weakness in the church. And it's highlighted to a degree that I don't think it has been for a long time in our country, a deep pain that many of our people that are attending our churches are living with every day. And so there is a moment for action right now for us to make a difference and to change the trajectory of the church and our culture, starting with what has happened over the last several weeks. And so let's not take that for granted. Some of you student pastors sit around and pray, Lord, do big things, do big things. What, what can you do? What doors are you going to open for me in ministry? How can I lead my people? How can I challenge my students? How can I challenge my families? There is a huge opportunity for ministry and for change, for gospel effectiveness right now in this moment. All of those prayers that you've prayed for God to give you big dreams and visions for how to lead the church, to be the church more effectively, have been answered in these moments through some really difficult times. And the conversation is open. People are willing to have it. People are willing to hear it. People are willing to have grace. People are willing to grow and learn. And there's resistance, yes. But don't miss this moment. And this has been another episode of the LifeWay Student Ministry Podcast. We'll see you next time.